We'll hear argument now, number 02-1290, the United States Postal Service versus Flamingo Industries. <coughs> Mr. Needler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit held in this case that the United States Postal Service may be sued for trouble damages under the federal antitrust laws. The Court of Appeals fundamentally erred in this holding. Throughout the nation's history, postal operations have been carried out by the United States Government itself, pursuant to the express authorization in Article I of the Constitution for Congress to establish post offices and post roads. As this Court explained in the Council of Greenberg case about 20 years ago, the furnishing of postal services has historically been regarded as a sovereign function, indeed a sovereign necessity, to promote intercourse among the states and bind the nation together. Such functions of the United States Government are not regulated by the antitrust laws. Indeed, more than 60 years ago in the Cooper Corporation case, this Court held that the United States is not a person for purposes of the antitrust laws. Although the precise question before the Court in that case was whether the United States could sue as a plaintiff under Section 7 of the Sherman Act, the Court noted that the same word person is used to describe who may be held liable as a defendant, either in a civil action or in a criminal prosecution. Mr. Needler, in your view, are there any instrumentalities of the United States that you think could be considered a person under the Sherman Act? Well, I I think there are no instrumentalities that are constituent parts of the United States government itself that could that could be held liable. The word instrumentality is used in in a somewhat vague sense, an elastic sense, and I think it would be necessary to look at the particular statute to see uh, how much of a governmental character a particular entity has. Of course, I guess the court whose judgment we're reviewing thought that the change in the structure of the Postal Service affected the nature of that instrumentality. It, it, it did, but the, um, the, the Court of Appeals was wrong uh, on that. Uh, first of all, after the, the Court of, after the, uh, this Court's Cooper decision, a number of lower court decisions have held, beginning with the D.C. Circuit's decision in the Sealand case involving the Alaska Railroad, that agencies of the United States or instrumentalities, just like the United States itself, uh, is not a person uh, subject to the antitrust laws. The Ninth Mr. Circuit. Neither, Mr. Neither, but I don't think in that case there was, the question was raised whether the Alaska Railroad was uh, an agent of the United States that would would carry the immunity of the United States. Well, the, the uh, it was the court regarded it as an as an instrumentality, and in fact, the the, the court uh, there recognized that the. Um, railroad and the officials of the government responsible for supervising the railroad could be sued under the APA, uh, and that therefore there had been a waiver of sovereign immunity to that extent and to the extent of allowing injunctive relief. So the, the court certainly focused on the, on the question that the, uh, Alaska Railroad and those responsible for managing it were part of the United States, uh, government. I don't uh, think it was a contested issue in the, in that case. Um, it may not have been contested, but, it, but it w- the Court certainly addressed that question and then went on to hold that, uh, as an instrumentality of the United States, uh, the, the uh, railroad was not subject to suit under the antitrust law. Is the Postal Service subject to the Administrative Procedure Act? It is not. It, it, um, Congress specifically accepted it. There's, in Section 410 of the Act, there's a very detailed um, enumeration of the provisions that Congress 
uh, did want and did not want uh, to be uh, the Postal Service to be subject to. But the, the, the important point for present purposes is that in 1970, when Congress enacted the Postal Reorganization Act, it carried forward the essential governmental character of the Postal Service just as it had been up until that point. In fact, Section 101A of the Act says that the United States Post — and I quote, the United States Postal Service shall be operated as a basic and fundamental service provided to the people by the government of the United States. And then it says the Postal Service shall have as its basic function the obligation to provide postal services to bind the nation together. When you say it carried forward the, the essential governmental character, what, what does that consist of? Doesn't it consist of the, the nature of the entity, not just, just the, 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 the tag? It can't just put a tag on it and, and say it, it has an essentially governmental character. I thought that the, that the purpose of the reorganization was to make the postal service function like a regular business. Um, in, in, a, in a limited sense, um, con- Congress. Well, I'll qualify it: a regular business, a regular public utility. No, which I, has, I, I. Which has certain obligations. Yes, they have to do universal, <laughs> universal mail service, just as a telephone company has to give universal telephone service. But on the other hand, the rest of their operations were supposed to be businesslike. Uh, in the in the. Um description of, of how the Postal Service was to be operated carrying forward. The, the um, Congress repeatedly referred to the Postal Service as, as a governmental function, a public service, to be operated in a business-like way. But what Congress meant by that was to insulate the Postal Service from the prior political interference that had come up by imposing the duty on Congress to repeatedly raise rates and, and address uh, services. Insulated from the government. Not by, you're, by no means. You're saying on the one hand it's part of the government, but on the other hand, what Congress wanted to do was to insulate it from no, the government. Uh, by, by no means insulated from the government. The Postal Service, the, the governors of the Postal Service are denominated officers of the United States. So the people responsible for the Postal Service are officers of the United States. Are they removable by the President? They're removable for cause. For cause, just like the heads of independent agencies. Yes, but, but cer- certainly the uh, other independent agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and agencies like that are part of the United States government performing a governmental function. Congress never said that they were supposed to operate like a business, which was the purpose of the Reorganization Act. Actually, in the, in the text of the Act itself, uh, there, there is, there is um, not uh, an express directive that the Postal Service will be operated like a commercial entity. What Congress had in mind was to, was to rationalize the internal operations of the Postal Service, but it did not change any of the fundamental ways in which the Postal Service uh, operated. It, it maintained the postal monopoly, which uh, under the private express statutes, about 80 percent of the revenues of the Postal Service are uh, are protected it, it by the did, It did government. retain that monopoly, and, and, and the government's position here is that the Postal Service has the power to extend that monopoly into fields that the government did not specifically confer upon it, right? Because uh, you, the government's position, as I understand it, is not only that the Postal Service can't be sued under the antitrust laws, but that the, that the Postal Service is not subject to the antitrust laws. It is not a person within the meaning of so the antitrust it, it, laws. It can go ahead and extend the monopoly conferred by statute beyond the, the narrow context granted by Congress. That is not a, that is not a new feature of the, of the uh, Postal Service. As we point out in our, in our reply brief, uh, quoting um, uh, this Court's uh, decision, um, in the um, 
Emergency Fleet Corporation case. There the Court pointed out, with respect to the Post Office, it said the Post Office has since 1872 competed with bankers through money orders. It competed with savings and loan associations through savings accounts, which suppose the Postal were, Service operated. Suppose there were an actionable violation of the antitrust laws, uh, and there was a conspiracy between two private suppliers. And the Postal Service, through some of its high officers, joined that conspiracy. Would there be any liability uh, individual liability on the part of the officers of the Postal Service? I, um, I'm not sure about that. The Postal Service itself would not be would not be liable. And I, I and I think if the I guess it depends on what one means by a, by a conspiracy as well. Because if the the Postal Service has broad authority uh, in procurement, for example, uh, to it, it's exempt from some of the federal procurement statutes, but Congress granted it the authority to have its own procurement arrangements. So if the if if a uh, if the Postmaster General uh, decides on a particular procurement methodology um, uh, that um, that was alleged to be uh, anti-competitive, I don't think that could be uh, fairly characterized as a conspiracy. Is the, the private ex- express statute still in effect? It is. It, it is, and that has that has not been changed. And the, the court um, court discussed that uh, in the uh, California Board of Regents uh, uh, case and other and other decisions um, of, of this court. Really, the, all the Ninth Circuit relied upon in in this case was the presence of a sue-and-be-sued clause in the Postal Reorganization Act, which simply says that the Postal Service may sue and be sued in its official name. There is, a, there is virtually no discussion of that provision in the legislative history of the Act. And the Ninth Circuit essentially said that because the Postal Service may, sue, may be sued in its official name, therefore it has, its sovereign character has been cast off and it can be sued just like a private party. That, that analysis is in direct conflict with this Court's decision in FDIC versus Meyer, where the Court reversed a similar determination with respect to the FDIC, saying that the Ninth Circuit had con- conflated what are two analytically distinct questions. The first is whether there is a waiver of sovereign immunity. We do not dispute that there is a waiver of sovereign immunity here under the sue and be sued clause. But the, the second and critical question here is whether the, the substantive law that the plaintiff relies upon provides an avenue for relief. In this case, that is the antitrust laws. And Congress uh, has never amended the antitrust laws to make an agency or an entity of the United States government uh, liable. After the decision in Cooper, Cooper Corporation, Congress amended the Clayton Act to allow the United States to sue as a plaintiff if it's injured in its business or property. But it did not do that by changing the word person. It, it ex- explicitly provided a cause of action for the United States as the United States. But it did not, uh, as the D.C. Circuit pointed out in the Sealand case, uh, amend the definition of person or otherwise make the United States or its constituent parts subject to the antitrust laws as a, as a defendant. What happens? I'm sorry. Go on. Mr. Needle, just a, a Section 201 of Title 39 says, there is established as an independent establishment of the executive branch of the government of the United States, the United States Post Office. Was that in the statute before the <coughs> reorganization, or is that part of the reorganization? That's part of the reorganization. There was a post office department uh, before that was part of the cabinet. And what, what Congress wanted to do was to take the post, postal operations out of the cabinet and put them under uh, under the Board of Governors uh, that, who are officers of the United States, but not part of the Cabinet. And the, the phrase establishment of the uh, executive branch is used with respect to other uh, 
undeniably federal agencies, as we point out in our in our brief, the OPM, Office of Personnel Management, uh, the uh, Transportation Safety Board, uh, and it, I, I think it's just intended to uh, make clear that the Postal Service was not to be under the President's direct control. Uh, and in fact, uh, there were proposals to make the Postal Service a corporation, and Congress emphatically rejected that. And instead, as President Nixon proposed in, uh, in submitting a proposal to Congress, the Postal Service would be uh, constituted as an agency like the SEC or NASA or the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. All of those entities are, are performing quintessentially governmental functions that are not subject to the antitrust laws. If I get into a car accident with a, with a postal delivery truck, do I sue the United States under the Federal yes. Tort Claims Act? Yes, you do. And, 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 and uh, it's, it's, an, it's an important thing to, to be clear about in the Postal Reorganization Act, pervasively throughout that statute, Congress treated the Postal Service as a governmental entity. The torts are subject to the Federal Tort Claims Act. Mr. Uh, Nieder, where does the money come to pay the judgment? Out of the, out of the Postal Service fund, but that is a fund in the Treasury. There's a separate But provision. it isn't the general judgment fund. No, no, it's, no, it's not. But, the, but there are other, other situations in which appropriated funds uh, from a particular agency are used to reimburse the, the judgment fund if there's a particular appropriation set aside for that purpose. So this is not a unique feature uh, of, of, the, of the Postal Act. But if I could also mention, torts are subject to suit uh, against the United States, but with respect to contracts, Congress subjected the Postal Service to the Contract Disputes Act. Uh, the, the Court of Claims held almost 20 years ago, soon after the Act was passed, that the United States itself could be sued under the Tucker Act based on a breach of contract with the Postal Service because of the close connection between the Postal Service and the United States. The Postal Service could be sued in district court in its own name under the sue-and-be-sued clause for breach of contract, but the Court of Claims held that that the United States itself can be sued and therefore is responsible for the contracts uh, of of the Postal Service. Could the United States sue, uh, bring an antitrust suit as plaintiff on behalf of the Postal Service? We, we believe it could. It, it, w- it would be brought in its own name, but, but the United States, if the Postal Service, just like any other entity, purchased uh, uh, goods, for example, and was a victim of, of, a, um, of, a, of an antitrust violation, the United States would be able to sue and, and collect uh, trouble damages. That was the purpose of the Cooper Corporation case, where there was a, a procurement of tires uh, by a number of different federal agencies, and Congress authorized the United States to bring a suit to recover for the injuries sustained to federal agencies generally in that situation. Under the, under the sue and be sued clause, um, is it your position that there must always be a federal statute authorizing the suit before the post office has any substantive liability? Um, as a general rule, yes. Uh, there, b- before the Federal Tort Claims Act was passed, though, um, it was assumed that um, tort claims could be brought against federal uh, or entities that had sue-and-be-sued clauses, although a lot of those were private corporations that were instrumentalities, not, uh, not federal agencies. And also with so the sue-and-be-sued clause does have some substantive force in some other cases? It's, it's been unclear. It's, it's unclear because back when they were first uh, put in the, in the statutes, the, the separation of, the, of a, the existence of uh, a waiver of sovereign immunity and the existence of a cause of action uh, were, were not uh, 
separated the way they are today. Uh, for example, um, under, the, under the Tucker Act, uh, a plaintiff can bring a breach of contract action against the United States, uh, even though there's no statute that specifically provides a cause of action for breach of contract. It's thought that the, that the uh, reference to contracts in the Tucker Act is a sufficient basis for that. Does we, the post office uh, have the power of eminent domain? It does. It does, and it has it, — it, it carries forward the power to investigate postal offenses uh, to, uh, to — uh, with, with appropriate uh, authorization to search um, the mails. Um, what, about a lot in, of what about inverse condemnation? Uh, so supposing the post office takes property without the ability to pay for it. I don't know that the question has arisen, but I, I would assume that a, a suit could be brought against the United States under the Tucker Act uh, on the same theory that I mentioned with respect to a breach of contract by the Postal Service. Mr. Uh, Needler. Don't, uh, be, before we get off of eminent domain, don't, don't a lot of uh, state public utility uh, entities uh, have the power of eminent domain? They, they do, and that, so well, that really doesn't determine. What well, I, I, I think it's part of an overall pattern. They're subject to the to the Sherman Act, of course. But, but it's part of an overall pattern. Congress does not lightly confer the right of eminent domain on on federal agencies, but it's part of a general pattern in which the United States, excuse me, in which Congress uh, treated the Postal Service as a as a governmental entity. I did want to point out one particular way that illustrates the the. Uh, the way in which the um, antitrust laws are unsuitable here, the precise dis- this is this is at bottom a re- routine a routine procurement dispute. And as the Ninth Circuit held in this case, uh, the plaintiffs here had a cause of action. In fact, brought one under the Administrative Disputes Resolution Act that is essentially a bid protest statute. And there are two features of that statute that are inconsistent with antitrust liability in this setting. First of all, Congress expressly provided that the standard of review in such an action is the arbitrary and capricious standard of the APA, meaning that the Postal Service, like any other federal agency subject to that, has Seems to have to me, Mr. Needler, this is an argument that you don't have an antitrust violation here, but we're concerned with the problem of whether you had a classic violation. Say they agreed with uh, somebody else on a prices they would charge for advertising the Olympics or something like that, where you had a clear violation. Here you don't have a clear I think it's arguable whether they alleged a violation, but that's not the issue before us. Well, it, it, ex- except, uh, except to this extent, um, in, in virtually every direction you turn in looking on how, the, on how disputes involving the Postal Service are handled, you find a governmental uh, dispute resolution mechanism. That, this was the point about but the — But what about a breach of uh, infringement of patents, for example? There's, there's, a, there's express authorization for suing the United States. And infringement for, of copyrights. So uh, same, same thing. Where, con- where Congress has wanted to provide — Supposing the United- there was a, one of these antitrust violations that involved abuses of patents in order to extend a monopoly or something like that. That could be a classic antitrust violation. Would you say there are f- other federal remedies there? Uh, there, there might be there might be remedies uh, under some of the statutes mentioned here. There, um, I mean, Congress has expressly subjected the United States to suit under the Lanham Act, under the copyright statute, under under the uh, trademark laws, under the patent laws. Um, but uh, and and then there are these procurement statutes that I mentioned that are applicable in this particular case. But in this case as well, Congress did not provide for treble damages. The only monetary relief. Uh, a plaintiff could get in this procurement situation, as we point out in our brief under the Administrative Dispute Resolution Act, is bid preparation costs, not well, treble damages. What if, what if the post office buys a lot of paper from somebody and doesn't pay for it? What, what is the remedy of that person on uh, uh, a contract? Uh, uh, there would be an 
alternative remedies uh, before the Contract Disputes Act was passed, the Postal Service could have been sued itself in its own name under the Sue and Be Sued Clause or in, in the Tuck, uh, under the Tucker Act in the, in the uh, Court of Claims. Now, under the Contract Disputes Act, Congress has made that statute applicable to the Postal Service, just as it has to uh, other federal entities. And that could be a, that sort of an action could be brought under the Contract Disputes yes. Act? Yes. Uh, and there is, a, there is specifically a Postal Service uh, Board of Contract Appeals, just there, as there is a Board of Contract Appeals in, in other agencies. Would there be an old, is some alternative remedy to the antitrust law if the Postal Service decided to use its profits from the monopoly business, uh, in effect, to uh, subsidize predatory rates in the package delivery business in order to put UPS out of business. The way the way Congress uh, addressed that was to subject the Postal Service uh, <coughs> to the jurisdiction of the Postal Rate Commission, and uh, the, all. Well, let's assume they go along with it. They say, "Okay, we are going to eliminate UPS." Would there be any alternative uh, source of remedy by UPS to the antitrust law? Well, I would, I would <coughs> if, um, the a decision. It's a complicated mechanism the way the Postal Rate Commission interacts with the Postal Service. But there is a provision for judicial review if the Postal Service. Uh, enters a final decision after, after receiving the input from the Postal Rate Commission, there's a provision for judicial review of that, of the what would be the substantive classification. What would be the substantive basis for the review? Under the, under the Postal Reorganization Act, the provisions beginning in, in Section 3601 of the Act address rate-making and classification, and there are specific standards there that the Postal Rate Commission and the Postal Service must adhere to. And, and would it eliminate this uh, possibility of, of predatory uh, uh, Lowering, lowering rates. They, they are designed to. The, 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 way the, the way the Act operates, it specifies that each classification — first of all, two things. One, overall, the Postal Service rates are to be set at a rate so that they, um, the income will roughly uh, equal expenditures. And then within each class, Congress has provided that the direct and indirect costs of that class are to be allocated to it, along with some uh, an appropriate portion of the institutional costs, the things that are difficult uh, to to allocate to any one uh, any one class. Of course, this only becomes a real problem when the Postal Service turns a profit on its monopoly business, which it has not yet succeeded in doing, has it? Well, and it, and it's not over the long term. Over the long term, since the. Um, Postal Reorganization Act, I believe that the Postal Service is within about a billion dollars of breaking even. There are times when it is in a deficit. There are times when it, when it is in a surplus. But the statutory goal is that it, that it be uh, roughly equal balance between, uh, between income and expenditures. Mr. Needler, can I ask you a basic question I just kind of forgotten that I thought I knew about? But I thought the Postal Service had a mon- monopoly of the business of delivering letters and packages and that these competing services are only allowed — to exist by some special pr- privilege granted by the Postal yes, Service. Yes, uh, that, that's true for letters, but not for parcel But not for parcel, I uh, Yes, there's, there's an ex- um, the Postal Service adopted uh, an exception to the private ex- express statutes for urgent letters, uh, which, which has allowed organizations like Federal Express to, to carry uh, letters uh, for urgent delivery. Absent that exception, they would, that practice would be prohibited by the, um, uh, by the private express statutes. But the, the idea that the Postal Service competes with, with, uh, with non-federal entities uh, is not new. As, as I pointed out, uh, 
the Postal Service began competing with money orders before the turn of the last century. For 50 years, it had savings deposits with up to 4 million depositors that competed with savings associations. Uh, so, it, and, and it, it's competed, it went into the parcel post uh, business, the parcel delivery business in 1913 in, alongside of other businesses. So that, that sort of competition with private businesses has, has occurred since well before the Postal Reorganization Act and nothing in the Postal Reorganization Act changes uh, the, the way in which that should be regarded under the, under the antitrust laws. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Krant, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As Justice Scalia noted, Congress launched the Postal Service into the commercial world in 1970, authorizing it to compete in any market of its own choosing. And this new commercial entity fits comfortably within the term person under the antitrust laws for at least four distinct reasons. First, this is unlike any other federal entity in the fact that the Postal Service has been authorized to decide which markets it wants to compete into. It's not competing in order to fulfill a specific congressional mission, but rather to compete in order to break even to make money. Second, Congress has directed that the Postal Service enter these markets with scant regulatory oversight. The APA, the Postal Rate Commission, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, all do not apply when the Postal Service is acting in, under its non-monopoly powers. You're saying, then, that the Cooper decision doesn't affect your argument because uh, the Congress has separated the Post Office Department from the, from the uh, executive. That's correct, Your Honor. And in many other contexts, uh, it's clear that this Court has recognized that the Postal Service should be distinct from the United States, the franchise tax opinion, the Loeffler decision, and I think the other well, — um, Neither of those are quite in point, uh. Neither involved a separate cause of action, but both involved this Court's recognition that the Postal Service is not the same as the United States and should be treated differently. What do you do with the statutory language that it's an establishment of the executive branch of the government of the United States? Well, I think it is an establishment of the executive branch, and it keeps some kind of connection to the United States. And so, for instance, Congress evidently cared about the fact that, given the monopoly given over letter mail, that there would be some tie. I mean, the, the President cannot, can neither appoint nor discharge the Postmaster General. But yet there is some link between the President and the Postal Service. Yet financially, the Postal Service is independent. There isn't any Postmaster General anymore, is there? Um, well, there, there is, Your Honor, in terms of the individual who's so-called under the statute the executive official of the, of the United States. And that individual is to, is also a member of the Board of Governors of the Postal Service and is to direct and execute um, the business operations. How is he selected? By the Board of Governors? Chosen by the Board of Governors. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and I think that, again, evidences the separation or the insulation of the Postal Service from direct executive branch control. But financially, as I mentioned, the debts of the Postal Service are not the debts of the United States. Any kind of, of recovery against the Postal Service does not come from the Judgment Fund. It comes from the Postal Service Fund. Again, these two things reflect the fact that the budget as well as the overall financial structure of the Postal Service is independent. And, and the fourth reason, Your Honor, of why the Postal Service is a distinct entity is, is the fact that there is a sue-and-be-sued clause. That differentiates this case from the Sealand case, in which there was no sue-and-be-sued clause. It doesn't di differentiate it, though, from the Meyer case. No, Your Honor. And indeed, we think, though, that the, these four factors together amply demonstrate that this is a, there is a congressional intent 
that the Postal Service be considered a separate, distinct entity that can qualify under the term person in the antitrust laws. Um, and indeed, this is not an unadorned uh, sue-and-be-sue clause. Congress said and thought about the ramifications of the sue-and-be-sue clause and thought about what specific limitations should be grafted on to the waiver of immunity. It decided to make sure that the Postal Service complied with the Federal Tort Claims Act. It wanted to make sure that the Postal Service, despite the distinction with the United States, viewed its own venue, had different venue, the but same venue. My, my, Meyer says you have to have something more than a sue-and-be-sue clause, uh, that you have to show that there's a, a cause of action available. So it's a sue-and-be-sue clause itself is not enough for you in this case. Don't you agree with that? I agree, Your Honor. And indeed, it's the fact that the antitrust laws say that every person should be subject to the anti-competitive um, measures or pro-competitive measures in, in the state. Well, yes, but the, that was true. That they said that in the Cooper case, too. The, the person in the, the Cooper court said, no, the United States is not a person. Uh, that's right, Your Honor, but I think the Cooper case must be looked at in the structure of the decision itself, because the Cooper court was very clear to limit its decision. It said that person did not equal the United States because of the fact that there were other remedies given to the United States explicitly in the Act, and indeed that that conformed but to the certainly after the Cooper decision, it was clear that the United States could not be a defendant either, was it not, as, as well as not be a Well, it didn't matter, Your Honor, because there was well, no waiver of immunity. Answer my question, will you? Uh, I believe that it was clear because, but again, I think that nobody tried to avail themselves of that remedy because the United States um, had not waived its immunity. But this Court extended the notion of the of person and to as broad as possible, including states, including foreign governments as well as associations and corporate, public corporations. Didn't the Court say in Cooper the reason why we're not letting the United States be a person as plaintiff because if we did that, it would follow like the night day that they would be a person as a defendant. And we certainly don't want them to be a person as a defendant. Well, we have no right. quarrel. That's right in the opinion. It's not something subtle. One of the driving forces for saying they couldn't be, they weren't going to read into the act plaintiff status was that this court thought that would mean they would be a person for defendant status. I agree that it's in the opinion, Your Honor, but this Court in Georgia versus Evans and this Court in Pfizer made clear to cast the Cooper decision in the light of the fact that it was a narrow decision predicated not specifically on that point, Your Honor, but rather on the notion that there was an election of remedies, the fact that the United States could sue to seize property under the Act, the United States could pursue criminal penalties under the Act, and that, that linguistically the United States doesn't seem to fit in within the terms an organization or association existing under the laws of the United States. Well, the, what, the Postal Reorganization Act was 1970. Uh, have any other antitrust suits been brought against the Postal Service in that 34 years? Not to my um, knowledge, Your Honor. However, the Department of Justice in 1977 and again in 1978 made findings suggesting that the Postal Service was likely to be subject to the antitrust laws. That's no longer the position of the Department. That's it? correct. But it was soon after the enactment of the 1970 statutes. And indeed, there are other entities, such as the Tennessee Valley Authority, which has been found to be a person under the antitrust acts. But I think it's it, the fact that this is arising this question arises under the Postal Service is no surprise, because the Postal Service has a roving mandate 
to decide to go into the business of greeting cards in competition to Hallmark, to go into the fact that it can uh, sell bicycling gear, to go into the market of the package industry, to go into the market of calling cards and competing against AT&T. There is no other federal entity, to my knowledge, which has this kind of roving mandate to make money um, from Congress. And, indeed, it has used this ability. Well, it's an think it, excuse me. I didn't think it had a mandate to make money. I thought the statute ordered it to break even. Well, it has a statute. It, it's, it's a rough balance. It's unclear whether it's supposed to make a little money or lose a little money. But, it, but it's unlike most profit-making institutions that are primarily engaged in trying to make as much money as they can. That is correct, Your Honor. But in the non-postal activities, the only objective is to make money. Certainly for universal service, there are other objectives limiting and channeling the actions of the Postal Service. But with respect to selling bicycling gear or selling greeting cards, the only objective the Postal Service has is to make money. And it has tried to use this power. And indeed, there were surpluses, as mentioned by um, counsel for the Solicitor General, in several years. So the Postal Service can be successful, at least at times, at other times, of course, especially after 9-11, it has seen hard times. But even, even when it is, I take it the object of the money that it makes is essentially to break even, maybe break even and a little bit more, uh, on, on the mail delivery operation, which the statute itself recites as being a sovereign responsibility of the United States. Well, th- I think that's... So, I mean, that's, that's a long way from General Motors. I, I think it, it, it's, there is no shareholders, for instance, looking for a profit. But the goal of the Postal Service in these other areas of business, whether it's the package business or the greeting card business, is to make money. Well, it is to make money, but it is to make money in order to subsidize a particular activity. And I don't think, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think there's an indication that there's a mandate there to maximize profits uh, to, uh, in, in effect, subsidize the rest of the government. Not, not the rest of the government at all, because there is a segregated fund. But it is there to, to make sure that any kind of losses that the Postal Service may sustain in its monopoly business can be overcome by profits generated in the non-monopoly business. And that monopoly business is described in the statute as being the discharge of a sovereign obligation of the United States, isn't it? Absolutely. The Congress has been very clear that there is a monopoly business to be, to be uh, pursued here, and the Postal Service is pursuing them. But that's not what the Postal Service is only about. The Postal Service is also constructed as a business. And that's what this Court has recognized in franchise tax and in the Leffler case. And according to that, business principles is pursuing other tasks as well. Indeed, Congress — What is the — what is the uh, organizational form of this business? It's not a corporation, is it? It's a corporation-like form, Your Honor. In well, a, but it's not a separate corporation. That, that's correct, Your Honor. I mean, the Postal Service has described itself as a corporation. Is it, is it a partnership? Um, it, it's it's a, a board of directors type organization with the board of governors serving as a type of board of governors as a board of directors and the board of governors as mentioned earlier chooses the head or the chief executive officer of or the postmaster general of the postal service itself. But the structure, I take it, is unlike anything that one would find uh, in in a in a private profit making organization. That's it's correct. Not a corporation, not a partnership. That's correct, Your Honor. I mean, it, it is, has a distinct structure. But I think that the Congress that launched the Postal Service into business and suggested that the Postal Rate Commission, the APA, and the Federal Acquisition Regulations wouldn't apply would not have wanted then the Postal Service to use any kind of monopoly powers to have a tying arrangement 
with an entity such as, you know, Emory Air Freight or, or Federal Express. It wouldn't want it to have it. Well, why isn't this the kind of policy judgment that we ought to leave to Congress to make explicitly? Uh, it, the post office has reorganized, has two aspects to it, as you've pointed out effectively. But how it should relate to the Antitrust Act seems to be the kind of judgment that Congress should address expressly. Isn't that so? I think, Your Honor, that the Congress has already made that judgment by suggesting that the Postal Service have the right to sue and be sued. The suggesting the well, Postal I thought we had already discussed that. I mean, the mere fact that there's a sue and be sued clause is not enough <laughs> under the Meyer approach to answer the question. You have to sure. take another step right. Right. beyond po- that. Sure, Your Honor. The question is whether or not um, the Postal Service fits within the term person. We know under the antitrust laws. We know the person can be applied to public corporations, as this Court has held. We know the person can be applied to states, as this Court has held. We know the person can be applied to foreign governmental entities, as this Court has held. So the only question is whether this person can also be applied to federal governmental entities. And we think that it's clear that some, but very few, governmental entities would qualify under the term person. But you, you, you concede that before the Postal Reorganization Act, uh, the answer to the question would be no. Absolutely. So you, you have to, I mean, it, you're not writing on a blank slate. You, you have to find enough in the Postal Reorganization Act to change that answer from no to yes. And that's really the burden. I agree, Your Honor. Given that the Postal Service was not, uh, uh, subject to the uh, antitrust laws before, something so fundamental happened in 1970 that it is now a person under the antitrust law. That's, that's your I fully agree your with that. I fully agree with that. And I think we can discharge that burden if you look at the fact that the Postal Service is financially independent, it's administratively independent, it doesn't have to comply with the pro-competitive measures in the Federal Acquisitions Regulations, it has a sue-and-be-sued clause. But its employees, are, are its employees subject to the Taft-Hartley law, or, or, or are they like, like Federal workers? They are the only um, employees in the entire government, to my knowledge, that must comply with the Taft-Hartley law. And, indeed, Congress specified that it must comply with the NLR because it wanted them to act more like a business and not have the restrictions of other organizations within the United States as they following the, the Federal Labor Relations Authority, Your Honor. So, so would, would their employees be members of the American Federation of Governmental Employees or — other unions? I believe it's the American Postal Workers Union. Postal right. Workers Union. Yes. So it's a, it's, a, it's a separate, they're separated again from the government with respect to labor relations. And indeed, they are the, one of the few governmental entities that have signified their own operations under www.com. Right? They have decided not to become a governmental player. But of course, the, 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 the Reorganization Act itself specified that they'd be subject to Taft Hartley, did it not? That's correct. That's part and parcel, I think. Why didn't it specify that they would be subject to the Sherman Act? Well, because I mean, you see, I, I don't think that helps you. I think it hurts you. It, 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 it is a significant feature that, that the, their employees are subject to Taft-Hartley. But that, that is more than answered by the fact that it says so in the Reorganization Act. Why doesn't it say so about the, uh, about the antitrust laws? Well, I think it's important to think about what the Postal Reorganization Act does say. When it waives immunity, it makes limitations. The limitations are that the Postal Service must comply with the limitations in the Federal Tort Claims Act, that it has a different, the same venue provisions as by the United States, 
um, and that it has some of the same jurisdictional qualities as the United States. So the, so the limitations and ramifications of the waiver are grafted in Section 409 very clearly. Right? There is no other limitation. And I think it's important There's to realize one, one sticking point that running through my mind. The fact that they had to waive the immunity in the sue-and-be-sued clause suggests that they're a sovereign. We agree that they're part of government, Your Honor. There's never been any kind of question but the fact that the Postal Service is part of the government. And is a sovereign. And, yes, Your Honor, um, and it takes, takes part of the in, the, in the sense that it would have immunity but for the waiver. Um, clearly, because Congress created the entity, and therefore Congress decides whether course, to waive them. You're right, they're subject to criminal liability under the Sherman Act, too. Well, so are states, theoretically, um, as well as cities. I don't think that would ever arise, but that is at least a theoretical possibility, and this Court has averted to that in prior decisions as well. Same thing is true, of course, for cities criminal under — case with the United States against the United States Postal Service. Well, I don't think it's likely to happen, Your Honor. But I think it's important that this, this waiver allows the Postal Service also to vindicate its own interests. Right? But for this waiver, Postal Service could not go in and sue for any kind of antitrust injuries, and it's not clear. The Congress could have said the Postal Service is authorized to sue and omitted the be sued clause. It could have done it that way, in that, which there would have been no waiver. That's correct, Your Honor. That would have made this case go away. But Congress chose not to follow that path. And indeed, if one could think that one launches a, a, an organization into the commercial marketplace, and takes away the constraints of the APA, the FAR, the Postal Rate Commission. Well, to say launch into the commercial marketplace, they're basically selling stamps and nobody else is selling stamps. What kind of a launching is that? Well, I think it's not for the monopoly uh, business, Your Honor, but the launching with, with respect to the package delivery business, the greeting card business, the fact that they are sponsoring Lance Armstrong's bicycling team. These are all the areas in which the Postal Service has decided to venture outside of its mandate. And it's the danger is allowing the Postal Service to extend its monopoly power into these new fields. When it goes into all those fields anyway, we've made this point about 15 times, it, it, it doesn't set the prices it wants. It sets prices controlled by a commission under a mandate that says they're supposed to break even. Well, oh, no, no. If I understand your, right. That's not right, Your Honor. In, in terms of all these different areas, the Postal Rate Commission does not operate whatsoever. It has no in-reading cards and so forth. No jurisdiction. Postal Service so is, is it, 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 And it's free. In other words, it doesn't — it isn't — well, you've — I thought you answered Justice Souter by saying that they do have an obligation even there to break even overall. Oh, overall, Your Honor, but the Postal Rate Commission has no jurisdiction whatsoever on the Postal Service's actions with respect to greeting cards, bicycling gear, and the package delivery business. And I think that points out the danger mm-hmm. of the monopolistic practices. One could easily so see — So if in, in the greeting card business they decided to go into an agreement with three other companies, Hallmark and Smith's greeting cards, and they were to fix their prices at $14 a greeting card, which seems about right nowadays. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, then under those circumstances, there would be no remedy. That's correct, the Your Honor. consumer of the stores. There's no government agency anybody could appeal to or do anything. That's correct, Your Honor. All right, so that's good. Absolutely none. And indeed, if there was a tying arrangement of trying to say, if you want our postal services, then you have to buy our greeting cards to follow your example. No remedy whatsoever there um, as well. So in all these kinds of Fear of predatory pricing, tying arrangements, monopolistic prices. The, the, well, the there, danger. there wouldn't be a remedy against the Postal Service, but I assume you could sue uh, American Greetings and Hallmark and whoever else had conspired with the Postal Service. You might, unless there was a tying agreement, Your Honor. If it was just the universal or unilateral action of the Postal Service with a tying arrangement, there would be no remedy. If it was unilateral action, there'd be 
Very we won't sell you any stamps unless you buy our greeting cards. <laughs> you never know. One never knows. It Mr. might Craig, happen. Can, can we go back to Sealand where I thought that the first point made in that decision was indeed as a result of the change in the APA that Alaska Railroad could be sued for injunctive relief. The court said, yeah, they could be sued like any person not for damages, but for injunctive relief. And then it said, but this is the question of whether Congress authorized them to be uh, a defendant in an antitrust case is a totally discreet question. It has nothing to do with the waiver of sovereign immunity. Well, indeed, that, that's right, Your Honor. And indeed, the, the difference in, in Sealand is the fact that the Alaska Airlines never had a, never had a, argued that they were separate from the United States. Their argument was that the United States could be sued for its proprietary activities under the Sherman Act. They didn't argue that they were a distinct entity. So they never said that there was no — they agreed that there was no sue-and-be-sued clause. And so that whole argument that we're making in this case was never even raised well, um, in the ceiling. From the Court's point of view, it — the Court made as a threshold determination that the railroad could be sued for equitable relief. So it could be sued. And then it says, but that doesn't answer the question. We have to determine whether there is a claim, any claim, under the antitrust laws, and on that the Court relied on Cooper. That's correct, Your Honor, because of the the Court's holding that the Alaska Airlines did not qualify under the term person under the antitrust laws. And it's our contention, because the Postal Service is not structured anywhere like the Alaska Airlines, because it's... Uh, Alaska Airlines did not have a separate budget. The Alaska Airlines could not sue and be sued. The Alaska Airlines had to comply with the APA, unlike the Postal Service, that the Postal Service is a person, whereas the Alaska Airlines and the SBA and the Department of Commerce and HUD would not be persons under the antitrust law. So it's a very narrow argument predicated on the structure. people uh, running this, nine of whom were appointed by the President of the United States, I take it. I'm sorry, Mr. Ball, I take it that the directors are appointed by the President of the United States, almost all of them. Except for the postmaster and the deputy yeah, postmaster. All right. So nine out of the 11 are appointed. Are they confirmed by Congress? Uh, by the Senate, sure. Yes. All right. So, and they're represented by the Solicitor General, and their license plates have uh, government on them. Well, I've never seen their license plates, Your Honor, but right. I'm, But I'm, I mean, and, and uh, they, they say that they're part of the government, and 80 or 90 percent of what they do is not what private industry does at all. And you have remedies against all of it except for, uh, under other statutes or powers of review within the government, except for a, a small portion. I take it it is a small portion, this greeting card business. Well, we're focusing on the 20 percent. We agree right All right. Then. And so, you're, in other words, I thought you were selling them sacks. You wanted to sell them burlap sacks. Well, they're not burlap, but yes, or they, they are. whatever they are. They, they, they are sack. Aren't sure. they used for mail? Um, they are used for international mail, for third class All right. So, mail. and they make treaties, by the way, too. I don't know that General Motors now can make a treaty. I agree with you, Your Honor. All right. So, so it wouldn't help you if we said that uh, in the vast bulk of their business where they have all these characteristics I just mentioned. Well, I think it would, Your Honor. Uh, it, it would help you? How? I, I think it would, because I think the argument Selling here. sacks for the greeting cards, too? Well, <laughs> I think that, well, actually, that they probably do. But the, um, the, the gravamen here is that there was a conspiracy to monopolize the mail sack business. 
as well as the no, of course they don't. don't they have a right to monopolize the mail sack business or not? Isn't there no. Is there no? They don't. We don't believe that as part of the that, monopoly. Then why don't you go to the commissions that run them and tell them they can't do it? Well, there there is a procurement claim pending, mm-hmm. Your Honor, but the Postal Rate Commission would not have jurisdiction over the um, the uh, mail sack <laughs> purchase at all, Your Honor. And so the the fear is that these kinds of of trade practices that are anti-competitive can go on without any kind of direct restraint. Certainly, there's an overlap between procurement and antitrust, but it's not congruent in that sense. I think it's helpful to think about what Congress intended by waiving the Postal Service's immunity in the sue-and-be-sued clause. Um, Clearly, it has to apply to something or some point in waiving the immunity of the Postal Service. We know, for instance, at least I think that, that the government has conceded that the Postal Service is now subject to torts, at state law torts. The franchise task suggested that the uh, government was... I thought it conceded that it was subject to the Federal Tort Claims Act. But the waiver was for torts, and then the limitation in the waiver said that the procedures of the Federal Tort Claims Act must be applied. But clearly there's a waiver. it's a state court action against the post office? That's correct, just as it would be in any other uh, federal entity. But, for instance, the — So the, the post office can be sued in state court, then, for a, sta- for a state tort? Well, it could be, except for the fact that the, the limitations of the Federal Tort Claims Act apply by virtue of 409. Well, that's, that's what I thought I asked you a minute ago, when you well, said not, something different. Well, I'm sorry if I misunderstood your question, Your Honor. Um, but the, the argument, then, is that, that in other kinds of cases, such as the state law that said person in the franchise task, task force, what are the, the question is whether that applies — to the Postal Service as well. And, of course, in this Court, upheld the determination that the Postal Service would comply under the term person under the state law as well. So how far does person apply? Contract law, tort law, what about the Lanham Act, the trademark case? Before the recent amendments to the Lanham Act that were mentioned recently, the, all the statute said was that it was applied to persons. And three courts of appeals suggested that even though person could not apply to the United States, person could apply to the Postal Service by virtue of its distinct status. But I thought the Lanham Act definition written right into the Lanham Act was that a person within the meaning of that act is an organization capable of suing and being sued. Yes, but courts had said that the United States, previous to that, did not fall within the term person because the person doesn't refer to governmental entities at all. So there the courts yeah, have distinguished. It said it with respect to the antitrust law in Cooper, but the Lanham Act defined person differently. But just slightly, Your Honor. The only difference was the capable of being sued part. The United States is also capable of being sued. I thought that was what was critical, that any organization capable of suing and being sued was within the Lanham Act. But the United States, Your Honor, can also be sued and is capable of suing itself. So I'm not sure that that distinguishes it. And indeed, under that language, courts had held the United States was not liable. And yet, the Postal Service had registered trademarks in its own name. The Postal Service had registered copyrights in its own name, even though the United States cannot hold copyrights. And there is but an exception. is there a good reason for that? Well, I think there is a reason. To stop people from engaging in design piracy and stamps? And indeed, if that were all that the Postal Service had filed for, I would be, I would be in total agreement with Your Honor. But the Postal Service had filed for 300, uh, at least 350, I believe, copyrights, books, training manuals, things that have nothing to do with the protection for the uh, legitimacy of, of stamps. So, again, the Postal Office has defined itself through its actions as a person in comparable commercial tort 
situations. It's only logical that if a postal service is in the commercial world saying that it's not like the United States for copyrights, for uh, trademarks, that's similarly not like the United States with respect to antitrust. When Congress formed the Postal Service, Your Honors, and it took away the APA, the Postal Rate Commission, for these non-monopoly actions, as well as the Federal Acquisition Regulations, certainly there was a quid pro quo. If you streamline the operations of the Postal Service, launch it into business, you would expect the private commercial torts in antitrust laws to be the restraint to make sure that the monopoly is not extended to the other kind of operations. And so I think that Congress's intent is quite clear that the Postal Service is unique, does not partake of the United States, and therefore, just as the Postal Service can be sued in tort law and under the Lanham Act, the old Lanham Act, the new Lanham Act, it can be sued under the antitrust laws as well. I think it's the burden, therefore, on the Solicitor General to explain why Congress would have wanted the Postal Service's monopoly to be extended and why Congress would have wanted the Postal Service to be to be sued, to be able to be sued and to sue themselves without really being able to take advantage of the opportunity to sue in their own name under the antitrust laws or under trademark and copyright law, et cetera, um, and why they shouldn't be sued as well. If there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cramp. Mr. Needler, you have six minutes remaining. Several points, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, in addition to the other uh, statutes that I've mentioned with respect to the right to sue, there are a number of other respects in which uh, Congress has treated the Postal Service as a federal entity. It's subject to the Freedom of Information Act, the Privacy Act, the Inspector General Act. It's subject to the federal sector OSHA regulations. And as this Court pointed out in the Leffler decision, it's subject to the federal sector Title VII prohibitions. Not, it's not treated as a private corporation for purposes of Title VII. It is subject to the National Labor Relations Act, but this act was passed in 1970 before the federal sector uh, labor, uh, labor management provisions came in in the Civil Service uh, Reform Act. And as you pointed out, Justice Scalia, that's an express provision subjecting the Postal Service to something that otherwise applies to private entities. But in, but in virtually every other respect, Congress has specified that it would be subject to federal law. Um, and uh, in Section 409 of the Act, with respect to judicial proceedings, Congress specified that the Postal Service would be, would be treated just like the United States, not just with respect to Tort Claims Act, but venue, uh, removal jurisdiction, and representation by uh, the Attorney General. Um, but the, the most fundamental point, um, however, to be made is that this is not a situation in which Congress has created a new entity and launched, in that sense, that entity into a private commercial world. Here, Congress uh, has carried forward the nation's tradition of treating postal services as sovereign functions performed by the government of the United States. These are, these are to the extent they're commercial functions, uh, and, and they are unusual commercial functions, the Constitution treats them as, as uh, something of particular interest to the United States government. Um, I should point out that with respect to the postal services, all postal services are subject to the jurisdiction of the Postal Rate Commission, not just those that are, that are uh, subject to monopoly, that, that the Postal Service has monopoly control over, Justice Breyer. So even in those areas in which the Postal Service is subject to competition, 
in, in parcel and uh, express mail, for example. The Postal Service, do, uh, the Postal Rate Commission does have regulatory jurisdiction so over greeting those cards. Rates. It does not over greeting cards, but the non-postal functions of the Postal Service constitute less than 1 percent of the revenues of the, of the Postal Service. We're talking about a very minor aspect of the Postal Service's operations. And the affirmative authorization for the Postal Service to engage in that in Section 4047 of the Act is cast in the same terms as the Postal Service's authorization to engage in all the other functions. But and they're really incidental. Only, the fact that it's only 1 percent means they're only liable under the antitrust laws for 1 percent of their business. No, it, I, I, think, I think it shows that, that — uh, that the predominant character of the Postal Service is as it ha- always has been. Uh, and these, these other services are really in most ways incidental to, uh, to Postal Services, like the greeting cards and, and, and that sort of thing. But they're the services that they want to bring suits under. That's, that's and, and this case, this is, this is not, this is not that. This case is, a, is an ordinary procurement dispute that uh, all federal agencies engage in procurement. Uh, and, and That's the it, curious thing about this suit. It, it actually represents a portion of the monopoly business of uh, using the monopoly to <coughs> to, uh, to monopolize procurement. Uh. And in procurement, <laughs> and, and in procurement in particular, Congress has treated the postal service like all other uh, all other um, uh, federal agencies under the Contract Disputes Act, and particularly with respect to the. Uh, uh, disputes at issue here. So in the end, we believe that, as Justice O'Connor said, this is essentially a policy choice for Congress. If, if in the current climate, the Postal <laughs> Service is to be subject to the antitrust laws, notwithstanding the fact that it remains a governmental entity, that is a, that is a choice that Congress should make, whether these governmental activities should be regulated by trouble damage actions, which is extremely unusual under, under federal statutes, and where Congress has chosen to subject the United States to liability under statutes such as this, um, but not nearly as free-ranging, the patent laws, et cetera, it has done so expressly. And we think 30 years after the passage of the Postal Reorganization Act, that if, this is, if the Postal Service is now to be subject to the antitrust laws, that is something for Congress to do and not for the courts to try to divine from complete <coughs> silence in the Postal Reorganization Act or its legislative history on that point. If there are no further questions. Right. Do, do they really sell biking gear? They don't sell biking gear. Do they sell biking gear? I, I'm not sure whether they I, — I, I don't know whether they sell biking gear. They, the fact that they aver- — the, the fact that they use uh, the Postal Service team uh, in, in, in promoting Postal Service products, I think, doesn't say anything about whether they're subject. They might deliver some mail on bicycles. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's entirely possible. Thank you, Mr. Needler. The case is — Well,